It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Lawmakers have made multiple efforts to update the state's probation laws over the last five years. And this year, another bill has been passed by the state Senate. Danielle Oles, an investigative reporter with Spotlight PA. Danielle, welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for having me, Kevin. Uh, You report people in the probation system can spend years in a cycle of monitoring and incarceration for non-criminal violations such as. Yeah, that's right. It really depends on what the judge set as the terms of the person's probation sentence. But this could be anything from, you know, missing a call uh, from a probation officer, failing to find you know, court-ordered mental health treatment if there was a delay or no one got back to you. There's there's a lot of things that we would maybe think of as just inconveniences of life, but that can have serious consequences from someone on probation. So this minor, my term, violation of a judge's order could send you to prison? It could. Yeah, there's there's um, really nothing uh, preventing that in the system currently. So, yes, often people will spend time in prison for things that are not crimes and on the tail end of an original charge that really, you know, it, it could be serious, but it could also be something minor, nonviolent offense, a drug offense. Mm-hmm. So not a crime, but a violation of the judge's stipulation. Yeah, absolutely. That's mm-hmm. right. The efforts to update the probation law, they've been partly inspired by the publicity surrounding uh, Philadelphia rapper Meek Mill. He spent almost a decade under court supervision and then was issued a prison sentence for probation violations. Danielle, give us an idea, if you have a number, about how many people in Pennsylvania are currently on probation. Yeah, so it's a lot. Um, It's about 94,000. And that number comes from um, the Prison Policy Institute did a survey of of Pennsylvania probationers and and those serving probation in other states. So it's, it's quite a large number. All right. We talked about these efforts to reform. We're going to get into more detail about that. But why do civil rights groups uh, say there's something wrong with the current system and why it needs to be changed? Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned the rapper Meek Mill, and that's a perfect example of what we were talking about earlier. You know, he had charges um, back in 2007, 2008 that kind of extended out um, this tale of probation and then violations and then new probation and then court, uh, you know, uh, hearings. And and that's the kind of thing that people are really trying to prevent because they don't want anybody in jail or even in prison for something that is not actually a crime. You know, these are people that have been sentenced, maybe already did time and gotten out and are on, you know, just they call them, you know, tails. Um, and and that's the kind of thing that, you know, bipartisan coalition really wants to fix because it's not serving um, the safety of the Commonwealth. It's not serving the lives of the individuals. Hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. If you want to cut it. <laughs> so the question is, um, are there suggestions with how to hold these individuals accountable to actually meet these stipulations rather than missing them or ignoring them? 
Well, I think that there's um, consideration. It, it's not necessarily that people are missing or ignoring. It's just that the the terms of probation can be so um, difficult to meet that you know they are you know making mistakes that anybody would make, and and they're resulting in in serious consequences. The state Senate has approved legislation to reform probation three times in the last five years. You report that the ACLU supported the first attempt, but not the last two, including the current one. Why? Yeah, so the ACLU and other groups, including the one that grew out of Meek Mill's situation, um, you know, are aligned in thinking that this, you know, probation needs caps on the amount of time that it needs, um, you know, it needs sentencing conferences where people can potentially shorten their probation. But as we know, Pennsylvania is a difficult state to get legislation passed. And the process of amending that bill of, of, you know, compromising led the ACLU to pull their support because it felt that some of the amendments um, made the bill not only not go far enough, but potentially be harmful. So this law seeks to remedy the discretion that judges have? What? Yeah, it, it does a it does a lot of things. Um it it doesn't necessarily remedy the discretion that judges have, but under the current law, there is an ability for um uh, judges to provide probation sentences that quote unquote vindicate the authority of the court. And nobody really knows what that means, including judges I've spoken to. So that it would remove that. It would create um, a structure to have those review conferences, but it also does things that the ACLU is concerned about, like um, creates a new category of administrative probation, which they are, uh, they have constitutional concerns about. All right. What, briefly, what is uh, administrative probation? So it's designed to create a lesser form of probation if all somebody has to do is pay off restitution. But the ACLU has concerns that, you know, this is an unnecessary extension of a probation term that, like we've been discussing, you know, if violated, could you know, set someone back to the beginning. So they also have um, concerns about any kind of punishment that is based on inability to pay alone. Okay. And finally, uh, you mentioned this uh, bill has been passed by the Senate uh, in the House right now. Where does it stand? It's in the House. And as we know, there's a budget impasse. So you and I only know when they might get around to it. (laughs) Danielle O is an investigative reporter with Spotlight PA. Danielle, thanks so much for your reporting and for joining us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Kevin. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. For those experiencing housing insecurity, accessing health care can be impossible, even though these people might be the ones in need of medical care the most. That's where street medicine comes in. Medicaid will reimburse Pennsylvania providers who offer these services. One such program is Pittsburgh Mercy's Operation Safety Net. Dr. Jim Withers is founder and medical director of Pittsburgh Mercy's Operation Safety Net and founder of the Street Medicine Institute. Welcome back to the program, doctor. Thank you. And Tony Beltran, president and CEO of Pittsburgh Mercy. Good to have you back, Tony. Great, thanks. All right. Uh, you're known by your patients as Doc Jim. You coined the term street medicine many years ago. What do you mean by street medicine? 
Well, street medicine is the delivery of medical services. It ends up being a lot more social, other kinds of support um, directly to those experiencing uh, unsheltered homelessness. In other words, the folks that end up under our bridges. Mm-hmm. And has this term sort of been adopted across the country, uh, even around the world uh, where uh, you've spoken, uh, people trying to enact similar programs to help unhoused people? Yeah, especially in the last uh, six, seven years. It's, it's, it's a global explosion of that, of that term and that vision of bringing care to people. What can you do on the street? What kind of care can you provide? Well, um, we're finding um, in many programs um, that they're really pushing even the limits of what I thought might be possible with people doing ultrasounds and procedures and um, types of lab tests, et cetera. Um, It's still in my mind ideal to get someone into a solid primary care relationship, but um, increasingly we see that for many people that just isn't going to happen in any time near future. Uh, and so increasingly people are doing way more and using telemedicine and other vehicles. Mm-hmm. To clarify, are you doing ultrasounds on the street? It's done here. <laughs> I have a fellow that's able to do it, but um, I'm not adept at it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, your, your team is yeah. doing it. Um, I want to ask you uh, again, when you started this more than 30 years ago, did you see yourself as creating a movement that's not just here in Pittsburgh, around the country, but also in other countries? I probably would have been really surprised to know where things have gone back then. But I certainly had a really strong feeling that this was a fundamental thing that not just healthcare society had to look at who's excluded, um, not just working within our own convenient walls or systems, but um, making the house call like my dad used to make when I was a kid and, and getting right where people are. Tony, the street medicine, how much does it cost, Pittsburgh Mercy? Um, it costs it costs quite a bit to you know to fund the you know fund the team. But I think that one of the things that we valued is that really as a social service agency founded by the Sisters of Mercy, it's really a responsibility that we um, that we have, and we've taken that from you know day one. Um, so there's a significant cost, but we figure there's other ways to kind of figure that out. We've been we've had lots of generous um, donors that have provided services for um, for the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Has it been growing, whether in terms of services or in the demand, the need uh, for the street medicine? So I think just in general, we've been trying to grow the programs and make sure, you know, as Dr. Withers says, we want to get people into the next stage of, you know, of, of services and primary care. And what we've realized is that those locations don't necessarily meet the need. Often it's thought of as the person's failing to and a non-compliant. In reality, it's the systems that are failing the needs of the person themselves. So we've been trying to think of ways to grow um, grow that work through our 905 Health Center that we opened earlier this year, as well as um, we've been having lots of discussions over the last couple of years about adding more street psychiatry, um, and we'll be having a street psychiatrist join Dr. Withers' team later this year. Mm, very interesting. Now, we mentioned the Medicaid covers. That's new. Uh, what kind of an impact do you think, do you project this will have on the cost of providing street medicine, we'll chip away at some of those uh, costs. Uh, will it be a supplementary a source of income. 
Yeah, I think uh, I think chip away is a really good way to to, to describe it. It's a great first um, first step, and I think it's really important and and demonstrates the value of the work that's being done. Also, the dignity to the individual that they deserve to have these um, you know these services covered by um, by Medicaid. Um, and the reality is, though, it won't fully cover a lot of what Dr. Weather's team does is really build relationships. So we're not going to ask someone day one, "Hey, what's your Medicaid number?" Or others, we really will kind of ease into ease into that. But I think it's a great first step, and really, you know, um, applaud the state for um, taking this first step. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dr. Uh, Tony just uh, called it a great first step. What does this mean to you as a provider of care to folks on the street? Well, <clears throat> I think it legitimizes the importance of it. Um, the folks experiencing homelessness die at three times the rate of the population, but people living on the streets, we know, have a 10 times mortality rate to the general public. So it would be kind of like saying, we'll pay for the floors of the hospital, but we won't pay for the intensive care unit. Um, It's kind of insane. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think it's, as Tony said, it's a movement in the right direction. Um, It's not going to make any program really... um, uh, very whole financially. But I do think as we get better at this uh, legitimization of of working where people are, um, I think I'm sure that we will find ways uh, to to honor that um, the same way we honor other specialties and such with reimbursement. Tony uh, just mentioned about psychiatric services coming soon. Uh, Have the services that you've provided over the last three decades, have they changed much? Do the needs change, the medical needs? Well, I think fundamentally the sickness and the level of despair, alienation, exclusion is kind of the same. The population seems to be shifting in the last uh, 10 years. There are way more young people. There's much higher rate of uh, death from overdoses and what we call the diseases of despair, even than I originally saw. Um, psychiatry is and addiction services are just critical, and uh, so I'm really applauding this move. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tony, uh, you mentioned first step isn't going to be Let's see your Medicaid card. Let's see your uh, what's your Medicaid number. But will people need to be signed up? Yeah, so individuals will need to have Medicaid for us to, to bill. We do provide wraparound services. So if someone needs those types of benefit, any kind of entitlement benefits, we can, you know, sign them up and, and coordinate. That's probably a place we're thinking we might do through some telehealth, right? Try to be really inventive um, and learn um, from there. But yeah, they will need Medicaid to be able to bill. Mm-hmm. Dr. Withers, um, you build up a trust relationship um, from the beginning, or at least you had to, uh, will you have to do that in sort of trying to convince uh, individuals, say, you might want to sign up? you sort of building on that relationship? Well, of course, we have to be very flexible and always respect that person's um, agency and their, their reality. Uh, my experience over the years is that over time, people understand your desire to help them. Um, when we first began getting people their insurance, we weren't able to use it, but we were able to get them insurance so that they go go to other places. Um, I think it gave them a sense of empowerment, mm-hmm. um, and people um, they get it. They get that you're there, that you're you're their doctor or nurse or or caseworker, and that um, that you're honoring them. So I do think that um, we're going to see a 
a significant number of people um, adapt and uh, and I actually feel honored by the fact that uh, they're now into the system. We have just about a minute left, and I want to get both of you to talk a little bit about this. You both called this a good first step. What other steps, Tony, are needed? I think, you know, one of the things that's been demonstrated is that street medicine is able to prevent kind of more chronic diseases, prevent emergency room visits, hospitalizations. And I think in the future, we, there could be ways to thought, think about how to reinvest those savings back into the street medicine program so that they can expand the work that's being done. Um, our program, as well as others throughout the, the city, are doing comprehensive work and should, you know, be made whole for that. And finally, Dr. Withers, uh, what are the next steps that you have in mind or would like to see? Well, I'd like to build on what we've been doing at Pittsburgh Mercy. Um, the street encounters and that work is vital, but it's just the beginning of a relationship that then you have to follow people into other uh, resources. You have to build the resources if they're not there. So they, they almost have a medical home and a, and a social home in which they feel loved and respected. Dr. Jim Withers is founder and medical director of Pittsburgh Mercy's Operation Safety Net and founder of the Street Medicine Institute. Tony Beltran, president and CEO of Pittsburgh Mercy, thanks so much to both of you. Thank you. Thanks. It's the Confluence. I'm Kevin Gavin. Every time air pollution spikes in the Mon Valley, the Allegheny County Health Department issues an alert. Industrial facilities are told to limit their operations. Residents, especially vulnerable ones, are told to limit time outdoors. But what about those living along the Mon River, but outside the valley? And what defines the Mon Valley anyway? 90.5 WESA's Julian Forstadt looked into it for our Good Question series. Good question listener Frances Hartnett lives on the south side, just five blocks from the Mon. From her window, it looks like a river valley, higher elevation on both sides, water running through it. But I have a friend who has lived in or near Pittsburgh her whole life and insists I'm not in the Mon Valley, that the Mon Valley is farther upriver. Whenever Hartnett sees one of those alerts, though, I pay attention, wishing there were far fewer. To recap, Hartnett lives in a valley on the Mon, but not in the Mon Valley? Should she heed those air quality warnings or pay them no mind? To answer that, it might be helpful to address a different question first. Where exactly is the Mon Valley? Different people have different ideas. I define the Mon Valley as those communities that are located between the city of Pittsburgh and Elizabeth Borough. That's John Pro with the Pennsylvania Department of Community and Economic Development. For the purposes of this story, we'll go with her definition. And they are all within Allegheny County. These are places known for the steel mills that once dotted the banks of the Mon River. Back in 2021, the health department created the Mon Valley Air Pollution Episode Rule. It requires large industrial sources of air pollution to modify work practices anytime pollution levels are expected to rise. The goal is to reduce emissions of fine particle pollution and, ideally, lower the risk to public health. But why is the Mon Valley especially vulnerable to bad air quality days? There are a couple of reasons. First, river valley topography, especially on days with temperature inversions when the air closer to the ground is cooler than the air above it. The health department's Jason Moranji says that traps pollution lower down, and the hills on either side of the valley become essentially barriers that are set up by the river valleys 
that pollutants can't get out of. Moranchi helped develop the Mon Valley rule. Moranchi says the second factor is proximity to industrial sources of fine particles that are easy to breathe in. And the largest presence of those currently in Allegheny County is at the facilities in that Mon Valley region. That includes U.S. Steel's Clariton Coke Works, the single largest coke plant in the country and by far the largest source of particle pollution in Allegheny County. Although Moranchi says emissions do escape the valley, he says Southsiders and other Pittsburgh residents see far less air pollution on days when the Mon Valley episode rule is in place, at least according to monitor levels and modeling the county uses. But other models tell a slightly different story. Inside his office at Carnegie Mellon University, Randy Sargent points to a map on his computer. Little dots travel across the screen as time passes. As we kind of go through the 24 hours, you're seeing emissions from some of the biggest um, polluters, such as Clareton Coke Works, um, going all across the, the south side, across Pittsburgh proper. Sargent and the team at the CMU Create Lab wrote the model to demonstrate how emissions can travel miles from a source at significant concentrations. He says some temperature inversions keep air pollution low to the ground in one area, and valleys do often trap pollution. But what you'll see when, with these inversions is that the, the pollution can actually get out of the valley and go back to the next valley, go to the next valley over, can go across you know, Pittsburgh, which is a little higher. Even if a resident doesn't live in the Mon Valley, Sargent says they're likely still impacted by some of the same particulate matter that triggers a Mon Valley air pollution episode. He adds when industrial emitters are required to reduce emissions, more residents will experience positive effects. That's provided the two-year-old rule is working the way it should. And the health department says it needs more data to say whether or not that's the case. I'm Jillian Forstat, 90.5 WESA News. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, after the child abuse scandal involving Coach Jerry Sandusky, Penn State overhauled its misconduct reporting policies. Have they worked? Plus, for 40 years, the Pittsburgh Children's Museum has been entertaining and educating kids and their parents. Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Sitsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.